1: For most of us, lying down for sleep at the end of a long day is something we look forward to. Maybe we worry about the events of the day or have a little insomnia. Maybe we snuggle with a loved one or read a bit before turning out the light. But for some of us, the night is a realm of dread. And sleep is but a portal to terror. Because when some of us go to sleep we awake to a terrible presence in the room. Perhaps we can't see it, but we know it's there. We feel these things crawl into our bed and we're paralyzed and unable to fight back as we feel something climb on top of us and press us down into the bed. It's reported around the world, across cultures, across time. Maybe it's happened to you. It's happened to me. But in this episode of Monster Talk, we'll be talking to someone who can tell us what's really going on. And maybe, just maybe, the night can become a safe place again. It's actually quite
2: unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part eight, part man. In Larkness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland... It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
1: On this episode of Monster Talk, we welcome Dr. Brian Sharpless, co-author of an upcoming book on one of the most fascinating phenomena that I have experienced myself, sleep paralysis. The book is titled Sleep Paralysis, Historical, Psychological, and Medical Perspectives. Dr. Sharpless is an assistant professor of psychology at Washington State University. His studies focus on anxiety and unusual and rare psychological disorders, and of course, sleep paralysis. It's due to be published July 21st and is available for pre-order on Amazon.com. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. Welcome to Monster Talk, Brian. I didn't mention it in the intro, but you're also a listener?
0: Uh, Yes. It's an honor to be on the 99th show. Thanks for having me.
1: (laughs) Welcome. So uh, sleep paralysis is a phenomenon offers a a naturalistic explanation for a broad array of allegedly paranormal phenomena. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about what science has discovered about the phenomena of sleep itself?
0: Oh, well, uh, it's still very mysterious in a lot of ways. But one of the things we found out is that a lot of interesting things happen when it goes wrong. So sleep paralysis is when you're either going to sleep or you're waking up and you find yourself unable to move. So you're paralyzed except for your eyes and you can still breathe. But the strange thing is you have conscious awareness and about 90% of people have dreams, but they're having them while they're awake. So what you have are aspects of REM sleep that are superimposed with wakefulness. So you've got the paralysis of REM, which is presumably so that we don't act out our dreams because that'd be pretty terrifying. Mm -hmm. And then we've got the weird dream imagery that goes on during REM sleep. So you have both of those, but while you're awake and able to look around the room, but you can't move.
2: Hmm. So I guess, could we start off with some definitions? What is a dream and how is it different from a nightmare?
0: Uh, well, a dream is a broader term. Nightmares are by definition scary. And in sleep paralysis, um, they're scarier at a much higher percentage than normal dreams. There's something about the experience itself that really lends itself to a negative and a scary valence.
1: Is, a, is sleep paralysis fairly normal? I mean, how much of the population do you think it affects?
0: Yeah, I did a study on that. I combined one of my studies with 35 other studies. So we had a really large sample of 36,000 people. And it was pretty shocking how common it was. About 8% of the population has experienced it at least once. And the rates go up if you're a student, it's about 28%. And if you're a psychiatric patient, it's 32%. So it's really a common experience.
2: Why is it more common amongst students?
0: Um, My guess would be with them and psychiatric patients that they have more disrupted sleep, which is one of the predisposing factors that makes it more likely. So they're cramming, they have unusual sleep cycles, they might be drinking more. And all of these things can make you more likely to have sleep paralysis.
2: Right. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And pregnancy too, I must say. Karen. Oh, we're going to, to yeah. Yeah. We're gonna get
2: to that. Yeah,
1: we're going to get to that. Uh, so, what kind of um, cultural explanations for this phenomenon have you have you been? Or excuse me, let me correct this because I keep getting people writing me about this. What kind of cultural explanations for this phenomenon? <laughs> yeah, that's the singular phenomena is plural. Have you have you seen from the historical research how, how does this manifest uh, now, and and how do people? Uh, think about it in earlier times.
0: Sure. Well, people have been writing about it since at least the time of ancient Greece. That's the earliest I've been able to come up with. And what's amazing is that it seems to be a, a universal phenomenon. Yeah, I got that right. See? <laughs> but it seems I to be a universal so, phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> and now you won't get angry letters.
1: Congratulations.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, get Believe me, I get enough. <laughs> uh. When people hear that I'm saying that these things aren't caused by real alien abductions, they get very upset with me. Oh, but yeah. um, but you, it seems to be interpreted culturally in very different ways. So I collected a, a list of about 108 terms from different times and places. And some of the highlights are they call it the ghost that pushes you down in Cambodia. In ancient Greece, they called it, it Pan Ephialtes or Pan, meaning the god Pan who leaps upon you. Um, they call it the Popobawa in Zanzibar, which is a, a giant black bat. Uh, I think Joe Nickel talked about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably my favorite term is in Turkey, they call it the dark presser. It sounds like an 80s metal band that would open up for rat or something. And yeah. <laughs> um, in Mexico, they call it the, a dead body that climbed on top of you. So wow. you see, uh, there's a lot of scary imagery in there. And it's, again, fairly universal. So the main parts are it's a scary experience, and in most cases you feel pressure on your chest, like something's on top of you, pressing you, attacking you, sometimes sexually assaulting you. In the case of Incubi and Succubi, which are these libidinal demons that were written about a lot in the Middle Ages, they would actually rape people at night.
2: With these historical accounts, where do they come from? Uh, Are they um what what kind of what is the format for the way that you you've come across these examples?
0: yeah, well, a lot of people have written them, and it's oftentimes termed the nightmare. The original meaning of nightmare was actually much closer to sleep paralysis than what we would consider it today, which would be just a scary dream. but back in the day, a nightmare was you would feel paralysis, you would feel pressure on your chest, and you would feel uh huge sense of dread, anxiety, angst, what have you. So that's what a nightmare originally meant. And somewhere in the, I guess, the 19th or the 20th century, it it seems to have started shifting into just meaning a scary dream. For instance, you can find a lot of the accounts of incubi and Succubi in some of the medieval texts, like the Malleus Maleficarum, the Compendium Maleficarum, which makes for some interesting reading. Um, Contemporary accounts you can see in the UFO literature, A lot of the abductions, um, if you look at a lot of the narratives, the ones that happen at night at least, uh, people are – they sense a presence in their bedroom, and they can't move. They might be being levitated vertically or horizontally, and they might have these strange beings muttering – strange things and uh, performing experiments on them. And a lot of this fits in very well with the narratives going back to fairy narratives, um, narratives on vampires and ghosts and werewolves and all these things. So there's a lot of overlap, but it gets culturally interpreted in a different way.
2: And with the alien abductions, do you find that people are encouraged to believe that this is something other than just a sleep paralysis?
0: Well, I think with any strange phenomenon, especially a, a sleep phenomenon, a lot people don't usually talk about this. Um, I can't tell you the number of people I've interviewed that when I start asking these questions, they're like, oh my God, other people have this too.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: people don't usually talk about it. And I think when you have something that you can't explain that feels real, because these dreams, they look just as real as um, anything you're looking at right now, except mm-hmm. it's not there. So when people are are experienced this they have to struggle to come up with well how do i explain this and they use what's around them so in the middle ages when demons were talked about quite quite frequently a uh, demon could explain it now uh, you know that's a bit passe most people don't uh use demonology as an explanation these days but depends on, depends on, uh,
1: Yeah, it depends on where you live
0: <laughs> yeah true. <sure. laughs> that's true <laughs> But technologically advanced aliens or shadow people that might be interdimensional beings, that might be a little more palatable to a 21st century Westerner.
1: When I when I think of sleep paralysis, I think about Incubus, Succubus, and Old Hag. But you, in the book, you also link it to vampires, werewolves, ghosts, witches, alien abductions, and shadow people. Mm-hmm. And I would remind listeners that uh, the tide of vampires we talked about with Richard Sugg in our vampire poltergeist episode a while back.
0: Uh, sure. Well... I I don't think that sleep paralysis, it's not certainly the original explanation, but I think it's a piece of the puzzle when you're trying to understand how uh, bright people um, who are paying attention to the world can come up with um, some, from our perspective, fantastical solutions. So um, if you look at vampire mythology, especially the European vampires, uh, they attack at night usually. And you hear about them glamouring, and I think they even use that term in those stupid Twilight movies, where they can paralyze you with their gaze. And interestingly, some research I've been doing lately, I've asked, been asking people what they see um, when they're actually experiencing sleep paralysis. And they actually report seeing non-human beings more frequently than human beings. When they, when they see humans... They're more likely to see strangers, but they do see people they know. And at least in a college age sample, I just, I just assessed, and I haven't published this yet, but, um, they saw recently deceased relatives. Which was Ah. kind of interesting. And if you look at some of the real vampire cases, and I use real in quotes, but the ones that were reported and people were actually accused of vampirism, the way it would start would there'd be a a sickness in a village and a person would die. And then shortly thereafter, what you hear is the family report a visitation. And um, a guy named Barber, I can't remember his first name, but he published a book on this and he talked about um, how vampirism might actually be linked with tuberculosis. Because certainly family members would be more likely to contract it if someone in their family died. And tuberculosis, interestingly enough, in the later stages, it fills your your lungs with fluid and makes you secrete bloody sputum when you're coughing at night. And it makes your sleep really disturbed. So those things alone would make you much more likely to have sleep paralysis. And if in this context you were to hallucinate seeing uh, seeing someone in your room, and as I said before, most of these... Um, hallucinations are scary. So you see a relative in a scary context. It doesn't take much of a leap to think that, ah, the relative attacked me, and that's why I have blood on my sheets. There's been a lot of uh, lore about abductions. So you can see this in the fairy literature, vampires have abducted people and now aliens. And so one of the three types of hallucinations that you have in sleep paralysis involves movement. Where your body is being moved without your volition. It might involve someone moving your arm or your leg, or it could mean actually transporting your whole body. So that's another potentially interesting connection. And again, these things feel so real from the people that report it, they can have a hard time distinguishing fact from hallucination. Sure.
1: I have a lot of sympathy for experiencers of these things because of my own background, and I'm sure karen does too
2: (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah it's something i've been experiencing of late and i'm sure we're going to go into that shortly as well but i just wanted to ask why is it that it that sleep paralysis affects eyes and vision the way that it does and it doesn't seem to affect hearing necessarily or other senses
0: yeah, uh, we don't have a great answer on that. But during REM sleep, uh, your eyes are moving. That's why they call it REM because it's rapid eye movement. If you look at someone dreaming, you can see their eyes darting, darting all around. So mm-hmm. it's that perseveration of REM activity into wakefulness.
2: Okay.
1: So is, is something going wrong in sleep paralysis? Is it pathological in some way?
0: Um, It's harmless. Uh, but some people do have it a small percentage of the people that have it, about fifteen percent of those um, in the the samples i 've studied have had it to such a degree that it really interferes with their life um so that 's a relatively small percentage um but yeah, your body 's just um not completely waking up, so there 's kind of a misfiring of of waking up and so you have conscious awareness um but Let me see how to explain this. By and large, you're awake. And if you look at a a cortical EEG, it's going to look like you're awake. But other parts of the brain might be asleep. It's a phenomenon called local sleep. So you can actually have parts of your brain awake and other parts asleep. But to really test that, we'd have to do some invasive subcortical EEG procedures. That'd be Hard to do.
1: <laughs> it, when you're trying to study it, are, are there people who consistently have it? To, so that you bring someone in and they'll have it every night or enough that it makes it worthwhile to try to do a study like that?
0: Um, it's pretty hard. Uh, a couple of Japanese researchers were able to do that, and they brought someone in to the lab that had sleep paralysis. Another scholar whose name is um, blanking on – actually induced it in the lab. So what he would do, he'd have the person try to go to sleep and then wake him up right as he was trying to go to sleep several times. And that makes it more likely Mm -hmm. to uh, have a sleep paralysis episode. Hmm.
2: So do we know at all what causes sleep paralysis?
0: Um, Yeah. A colleague of mine at University of Sheffield named Dan Denis just did a genetic study. So there does seem to be at least partially a genetic loading for this. A lot of behavioral factors come into play, so people that are really at risk for it are like shift workers or people that are jet-lagged, anything that causes disruption or, or deprivation of sleep.
1: Um, uh, some other things,
0: th- yeah. This is, this is
1: good because when I had my incidents, I was on a 24 on 48-hour shift, so my sh- it was changing all the
0: time. Yeah, that's uh, it's good if you want to have sleep paralysis. I've been wondering what
1: caused... Co- this is a long story, so I don't want I don't to really get into all that, but... But basically, I've been curious about what caused it because really, realistically, like if I hadn't had sleep paralysis, we wouldn't be having this show because I probably never would have gone down the path of getting so intensely into studying these topics, wouldn't have run into Michael Shermer's work and several other things that sort of led me out of that uh, mode of thinking and into skepticism.
0: Well, I'm glad you got some sleep disruption.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Go Navy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, some other things that are, that I found out, um, certain types of anxiety seem to be very conducive to having sleep paralysis. So people that have what's called anxiety sensitivity or people that, um, get really fearful when they have anxiety related symptoms. So if their heart starts racing, these are the people that are more likely to think they're having a heart attack. Um, in two studies to date that I'm aware of, those people are more likely to have sleep paralysis. High levels of death anxiety is correlated with sleep paralysis. high levels of dissociation, and a trauma history. So people that have PTSD, uh, I'm not sure if it's because of the trauma or because people that have PTSD have uh, disruptive sleep, but there does seem to be a relationship there. And one study that I know of showed that if you have uh, a proneness to believe in the paranormal and the anomalous, you're going to be more likely to have sleep paralysis. Um, Let me see. Other ones, uh, having a higher BMI, body mass index, Okay. Um, Being really prone to fantasy, you know the the people that uh, are able to go in their head very deeply and when in their imagination and to get really absorbed in works of art, they, they seem to be more prone to, mm. to get sleep paralysis as well.
1: Okay, it's like you read my mind. What am I wearing? What,
2: <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, conditions like sleep apnea or maybe having a goiter? I I've always thought that those things seem um, to to trigger sleep paralysis.
0: Yeah, apnea, um, I don't have a lot of data on this, but certainly some people I've worked with have had apnea, and that causes sleep disruption, and it's pretty scary, and will lead to, lead to feelings of suffocation, especially mm-hmm. if you don't have like a CPAP machine. So that would make um, you probably more likely to get it. And I should also say, if you drink alcohol before bed, what alcohol does is it acts as an REM suppressor. So you don't go into REM sleep when you're on alcohol, and then you get what's called the REM rebound effect. So you're more likely to have REM sleep later in the night than you would if you weren't drinking alcohol. So that's another thing to – there are a few simple things you can do to not have sleep paralysis. One of them is don't drink four hours before bed or use caffeine. Another one is just don't sleep on your back. The majority of people have sleep paralysis when they're have it on their, when they sleeping in a supine position.
1: Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's great because my next question was going to be with treatment options. Uh, when, when I was actually experiencing it, I uh, I tried sleeping with the lights on because I thought it was a ghost. Uh, mm-hmm. That didn't really help much. Uh, <laughs> right. But uh, because it, g- ghosts are invisible, see, that's um, part of the They're problem. They're tricky. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I – yeah, so that's great. So I I think I just sort of hit on some of – I started sleeping on my side. I don't know. That's really interesting. Okay. So I'm going to stop saying that's really interesting over and over again. We can move on with the the questions. (laughs) Hey, it (laughs) makes me feel
0: good. So keep keep it up. And it is interesting. (laughs) Yeah, some of the early treatments are really amazing. Apart from, you know, the people that believed it was an actual attack by a demon or a ghost, they would do things to protect themselves using like crosses or – sleeping
1: with an ulu, because um, um, uh,
0: the, the uh, Inuits have a lot I, of I don't know. What a, what's an ulu? Yeah, it's an it's a Inuit uh, blade. It's kind of like crescent shape they use for chopping things. Oh, okay. And sleeping with that on their chest. Uh, some people have put cutting boards on their chest with an uh, open knife so they could stab the hag if she comes to attack them. Um, some of the weirder ones I've seen, um, where was this? To protect yourself from the Mara, which is sort of this night hag thing, you would lay a towel on your chest that's streaked with human feces. (sighs) Kind of gross. I've been putting it on the wrong side.
1: (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, this, yep. this is such a strange uh, interview, and I, I apologize. Normally, when we talk about these things, there are things I'm interested in, there are things I'm uh, curious about, there are things I've read about, there are rarely things that I've experienced firsthand, and so I, mm-hmm. I'm just uh, I'm delighted to be talking about this. Uh, Great. So, sorry.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's very close to home for yeah, both no- of us. I think <laughs> I just had a baby two weeks ago, and I think a lot of the listeners are aware of that. Um, congratulations. And yeah,
1: congratulations thank, thank again. Thank you very so. much.
2: <laughs> um, we've kind of discussed this, I guess, just in our, our emails over the past couple of weeks, that um, there are a lot of sleep disorders which are associated with pregnancy and insomnia. Uh, so is sleep paralysis something that's more common amongst pregnant women?
0: Yeah, Um just going to go into a tiny bit of background, uh, sleep paralysis is classified as a parasomnia, which is a fancy Latin word meaning alongside of sleep. So essentially, it's anything that's unwanted or distressing that occurs during, after, or when you're going into sleep. So there's a whole class of disorders like sleep paralysis, exploding head syndrome, um, all sorts of things. When you look at what happens during pregnancy, interestingly enough, the parasomnias seem to decrease with pregnancy, except for sleep paralysis. So during the first trimester, it has a slight reduction in the probability that you're going to get it. But for the second and third trimester, it actually ramps up. So it's unique among the parasomnias for becoming more likely, not less likely, during pregnancy. So...
2: It's perfect uh, timing
0: for me to come on because Karen just, you know, had a kid.
2: Yeah. Well, I uh, slept really well during the first trimester and I wonder if that has something to do with the increase in progesterone.
0: Could be. Maybe in the
2: body. But uh, during the third trimester uh, and just the last two months, uh, I've suffered terrible insomnia. Uh, I've certainly had incidences of sleep paralysis as well. And uh, I've been having these strange dreams where I'm dreaming that I'm unable to sleep. And then I wake up and realize I have been dreaming. So uh, I don't know if that's some form of a a sleep paralysis or what's actually taking place there. If maybe I'm sleeping very lightly.
0: Yeah, it's hard to say. Were you able to look around the room or were you able to sense your surroundings in the bedroom?
2: Oh, it's difficult to really remember. Um, Yeah. Exactly what was taking place, but yeah, I've certainly had a lot of sleep disturbances, and it seems to be very common amongst women um, you know during pregnancy, and you hear all kinds of claims that uh, it's preparing you it's an evolutionary biological thing preparing you f- to be wakeful when the baby needs you and when the baby's going to cry and um you know, just so you're sleeping lightly and you'll be available for the baby so I've, I've heard that theory a lot uh-huh. um. But, uh, yeah, I've just just had terrible sleep problems just in the past few months.
0: Yeah, you're not alone. Um, That's very, very common during pregnancy, for sure.
2: I I know a lot of women have discomfort, too, obviously, when they're at a larger size. They're unable to sleep on their stomach or on their back. And um, so it could just be a matter of suffering discomfort or or hormones as well.
0: Yeah, I wish my co-author was here. He's a psychiatrist and a neurologist, so he could get more into the. That piece of it than me unfortunately
1: oh yeah i was actually that was one of the questions i wanted to ask was, who is he and what's his background how did you guys hook up to work on this
0: uh his name's carl doug Ramji. he's a much more senior person than me he's a professor of uh psychiatry medicine and neurology at thomas jefferson university he's a great guy he actually um did analytic training at the analytic center where I did a fellowship and I had heard of him. And so when I was coming up with plans for the book, I wanted to uh, have an MD and I'd take sort of the psychology of it and the history of it. And so I contacted him, we hit it off and we had some really fun conversations and we decided to write the book together. And Oxford University Press fortunately let us do it.
2: That's well, a great concept for a book. Someone had to write it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm very curious about the sort of
1: opposite of sleep paralysis, which are, I, I've read about people who are not inhibited in their movement when they sleep. Uh, I've read some interesting but really horrific stories about people committing crimes in this kind of a mental state. Have you looked into that much?
0: Um, I haven't done a lot of study about it. I'm aware of it. Yeah. Um, yeah it's it, You can have people that are doing really effortful, elaborate movements like cooking. Um, I've heard of cases of people driving. Um, you've got another r- disorder that's causing some interesting legal arguments called sexomnia, And this is where people are actually having full-on sexual intercourse while they're sleeping. And they have no memory when they wake that they just had sex.
1: And yeah. They, yeah. At the time, I yeah, saw a legal so case a... where a guy apparently woke up mid-coitus with an underage girl who says he had no um. idea how that happened. So he actually called the police and turned himself in. It is a lot of legal questions about uh, when are you in control of your actions.
0: Yeah, there's actually a chapter in my new book that I'm about halfway done with. It's an edited book where um, Elena Del Busto is writing a chapter on sexomnia, and she's actually been involved in the forensic aspects of it. So it's very interesting stuff, and it's clearly going to make – Judges and lawyers' lives fairly complicated to try and sort out what's going on.
1: Does it suggest that consciousness is, in some ways, more about constructing narrative than actually construct the constructive volition, at least some of the time?
0: Boy, that's a deep question. I well, mean that's what the show's all about, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you think about sort of conscious awareness with, with uh wakefulness, which is one of only three human states. <laughs> then you've got REM sleep and non REM sleep along with the What's that when I'm
1: standing in the kitchen before I've actually drank my coffee, but I'm, I'm th- I've made it downstairs. What's that state?
0: That's for the zombie show. Yeah, okay.
2: Buddy. Oh yeah, that's the fourth state.
0: My- Zuvembis. <laughs>
2: Well, it it was my understanding that uh, people who do things like cooking and eating and driving and having sex in their sleep, that that was related somehow to the use of sedatives. Is that the case?
0: I've heard of that with... um, Using
2: Ambien um, and other drugs. Yeah, um,
0: I actually know some... I've heard of some students that will actually try to stay up on Ambien and, and, and try to have sex on it. And it's supposed to, I guess, <laughs> intensify it. I don't, I don't know why sex isn't enough, but yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, and there was an episode of Rescue Me where one of the firemen in that show did that and he was going around and doing really bizarre things. And it was kind of like he's in a walking blackout where he only had the ability to encode about a minute or two of memories and that was all gone.
1: Mm.
0: So yeah, but not sure.
1: I don't, I'm always, fa- well, I feel like I'm, I think it was an Emo Phillips who said, uh, he said, I thought the brain was the most interesting part of my body. And then I realized, what's making me think that? <laughs> <laughs> but but it, I do find it completely fascinating because everybody uh, during their life performs so many things and they have these plans, these hopes, these dreams, and then a little bit of damage to the brain and suddenly they're a different person. And mm-hmm. and as a, um, I, I guess, a, a materialist, uh, you know, I, I believe in that there's biological reasons for all the things that happen in, in our experiences. Um, I, I, I'm just fascinated by the complexity and the fragility uh, of the human brain and the human experience that comes out of that. Oh, yeah. So well, it, it, in your career, you, how, how did you select this as a career and, and how is that... Uh, does that drive your continued interest?
0: Uh, I have, boy, I I actually look back in my yearbook. I wrote that I wanted to be a clinical psychologist when I was in high school. So uh, I've wanted to be a clinical psychologist for just about as long as I can remember. I originally wanted to be uh, an archaeologist, but then I found out Indiana Jones was just a movie and they really didn't get to do all that stuff. So then I kind (laughs) of, when you're looking at pottery shards all day, I kind of Lust made right, yeah. it lose interest for me. Yeah. It's much
1: more exciting to be a looter.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so um, I, I was really just fascinated to figure out uh, people, why they do the things that they do. And when I work with patients, it's, I mean, it's amazing. People pay me to tell me the, their deepest secrets and to look at themselves in ways they've never looked before. I mean, how freaking cool is that?
1: It is pretty cool. Now, let's talk about yeah. the deepest secrets now.
0: and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and wag on. Ah, auditing <laughs> oh people, hey? <laughs> right, right. I need my e-meter. <laughs> but,
1: but in all <laughs> seriousness, so, so you're dealing with the, the clinical side. Um, do you feel like you're able to help? I mean, how's that work? I mean, like, how with do you measure your general? success from a, with a patient?
0: With patients in general or with sleep paralysis? Well, or no, with patients mean?
1: in general. I was just kind of curious about that as a career choice. You know, a lot of people who listen to the show are younger and, and are trying to decide what to do with their lives. So I, I, when we can, I like to ask people about, uh, you know, how they pick their career and if people sure. want to get into that yeah. sort of field. And so in this particular sense, the reason I'm asking is because I'm curious as to how rewarding is it to, to be able to help someone and uh, how frustrating is it when you can't help them? Mm-hmm. What's, it, what's that like?
0: I've got a really great job, and clinical work is only one part of it, so one of the reasons I like my field is I get to do research, I get to write, I get to teach, work with students, I get to run a clinic, and I get to see patients, so I get to do lots of different things throughout the day, and yeah, I love clinical work. Um, it's kind of like that old joke, how many uh, psychologists does it take to screw in a light bulb, to change a light bulb? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different answer. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's one, but the, the light bulb light has to want to change. Exactly. So, you know, so if you have a patient that's really in, that's really in, they don't have to be insightful, but if they're willing to try to be insightful and look at themselves and try new things and experiment and try to break themselves out of those habitual patterns they get into that inevitably leave them to misery, it's fantastic. Um, when you're working with patients that don't want to be there or that don't really have much motivation, then it's, it's um, certainly less rewarding. But I like all my patients now, and um, yeah, you can, it's nice to see progress. It's not as quick as you know giving someone a pill maybe, but um, if you look at some of the outcome literature, it seems like there's some evidence that the, the changes made in psychotherapy are more long-lasting than those made from SSRIs. Sure, that's
2: interesting.
0: So, yeah. so yeah, I I love my job, and um, you know, you get it's like anything else. You can have parts of it that are annoying, but by and large, I mean, I get to see patients. I get to talk to really interesting people. I get to write this book. I mean, I got I got paid to read 15th century witchcraft manuals for two weeks. That's nice.
1: <laughs> that's, that's cool. I so had to buy my own copy
0: of, and didn't get a penny for it. What? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, which, oh. You read the uh, the nineteen seventies translation, is that right? I think that's like. Um Malayas? Yes, yeah. I,
0: uh, uh, the Montague Summers one. Oh,
1: you read the Summers so, one? Okay, that's when I was reading yeah. too. Okay, yeah. I my, I found that whole book fascinating because it seemed to me that uh, it was like. Such a nerdy book, and I didn't expect to run into that level of. I mean, I can't. It's it's witch nerds. I don't know what else to call it. I mean, it's it's got all these Bible trivia. Co- I mean, there's so much argumentation about the most nuanced questions. Did I just yeah, can
0: incubi I, impregnate human women? Yes, it took I mean, it, it, about it, like thirty pages or something. It's not.
1: It's <laughs> not whether is it real or is it not. It's like, well, is Satan allowed to actually create anything? You know, and, and that would yep. be, you know, is Satan. Uh, empowered with the ability to make life, you know, that, that you know, and it, it, it's exactly, it's really interesting. These
0: guys were working in a paradigm. It was like what Thomas Kuhn would call normal science. They're taking all the presuppositions for granted and they're working on fine-tuning things. So, exactly. okay, well, can incubi impregnate human women? Well, not by themselves, but if they act like a succubi first and extract sperm from one person and then go and find a woman and then they turn into a male incubus and then they can impregnate that way, but they can't on their own. So they spend, I think, 20 pages on that. It, it makes sense. <laughs>
1: it's Yeah, exactly. But it, it reminds me very much of the same sort of thing that happens in Bigfoot studies where you have people... It's not a question of whether Bigfoot's real for these people. It's like... Mm-hmm what's his favorite way to catch food
2: yeah (laughs) that's just accepted as a given that he exists
1: exactly that's a presupposition and then everything Mm -hmm. else is about uh speculation about you know is he attracted to women researchers more than men you know like is it better to have menstruation is it does he like bananas you know just i don't want to say crazy because it's not crazy and that's a very loaded word but it uh, it is, I think, misguided, uh, Sure. Yeah. although it does seem to maintain some kind of internal logic.
0: So. But it's a lot of fun to talk about. Um, all of us are skeptics, but all of us, I'm sure, at some point in their lives were pretty entranced with this stuff. Oh, yeah.
1: indeed. Uh,
2: yeah. 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 I mean, as long
1: as we can all agree that Bigfoot's favorite Slurpee is Kiwi Cherry. So. Oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> hey, heretic. So- <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: well, I wanted to ask you, uh, Brian, as a personal question, so I guess you, you don't need to, to answer it if uh, if you don't want to. I have I'm an you... open book, Karen. Oh, excellent. <laughs> have you actually experienced sleep paralysis yourself or any of these uh, kinds of sleep disturbances?
0: It's so funny because most psychological research is really me search. I have actually never experienced it. I've been waiting really? and I've been studying this since. Um, I guess I, I, I um, started when I was on postdoc in 2008, and I have yet to experience it. And the other, another disorder I study called exploding head syndrome, I've never experienced that either.
2: Uh, what so, is that exactly?
0: Yeah. Um, that, exploding head syndrome, well, that's the colorful term for what happens when you're going to sleep and you're suddenly awakened by a loud noise. It's not like a normal loud noise, though. It sounds like a bomb going off or a gun being fired next to or even inside of your head. So um, that's another one of these transition experiences, kind of like sleep paralysis. And I've worked with some people that have had up to seven times a night. Oh. And uh, that has its own kind of connection with anomalous thoughts. I've gotten a number of emails, and there seems to be a connection of working this into conspiracy theories. So even if people know that there's such a thing called exploding head syndrome, they think that's what's causing it isn't just your brain misfiring, but it's a government agent using a directed energy weapon or it could be those new um, utility monitoring systems that are active. I just got a call from a woman who was very upset last week who wanted to tell me that it was caused by that or cell phones. So people are being tormented. They call themselves targeted individuals, TIs. Wow. And, um, they How do you deal
2: with those people?
0: (laughs) Well, I haven't worked with any clinically. I mean, they, they don't, I mean, they would be very much not inclined to come into psychotherapy because it's not, the problem's out in the world, not there. Yes. So, but, um, yeah, exploding head syndrome. Uh, there's not much treatment data out there, but some antidepressants might be useful, um, any convulsants and calcium channel blockers. There's some case studies that show they might work, but by and large, just telling people, "Hey, this is a thing called exploding head syndrome. It's not dangerous. There's nothing wrong with you," and a lot of people have it. Um, that alone has been shown to reduce the frequency of episodes.
2: So, mm. well, th- it,
1: this is interesting to me. The uh, people, humans in general, are always looking for meaning and patterns. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, Michael yeah, Schumacher, patternicity, but, but so the average person goes out into the world and they're able to function just fine, whether or not they're a critical thinker or not, because generally, even if you have a bad pattern, like you, you believe like people, gamblers, for example, who are heavy gamblers and believe they know how to work the system or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. that they know what's lucky, you know, that, that, uh, it's not true, but they survive just fine. Right. But, you know, in, in my line of work, uh, we, we, Uh, And I guess it's not exactly science, but uh, in IT troubleshooting sort of scenarios, you've got to be able to eliminate what's not true from what is true, or you'll never solve the problems, whatever they may be. Right? Mm -hmm. So you have to have some sort of uh, methodical, logical approach. But I know that many people can get by without that. So in this sleep paralysis scenario, in all these cultures, uh, there seems to be these common themes of believing that a a creature or an entity is getting on top of you. Now, as an experiencer, I know what that's like. Uh I didn't have any visual component. I just felt something on top of me. It felt very much like a person had crawled on top of me and was attacking me in some way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's very common. But why do we have this common... Uh, visual component that it's uh, a humanoid of some sort that's doing it. That that's, I find that fascinating that even though there is nothing there, that, that that's what keeps coming up. What do you think is going on there?
0: Well, what's interesting is there's a progression to the experience. Um, in the, and there's not a lot of scientific literature on this, but there's a bit. So there seems to be a sequence where you first sense that there's a presence in the room with you. It's kind of like when you're walking in, in the woods at night or down You know, an alley in Philadelphia at night and you have the sense that there's somebody watching you or that you're prey as opposed to predator. And then that leads you to feel fear. And then what happens next is you will see something because I think your brain's trying to organize. Well, okay, I'm getting the sensation of fear and that something's here. What is it? There's nothing there, so it organizing it. It organizes it, and it uses the categories that are around you. So, if you're in uh, 15th century France, you might think it's a werewolf or a demon. If you're in the the states now, you might think it's a shadow person. So, it goes from being sensed to seen and then felt. Mm -hmm. So, usually, it starts out shadowy, and you might just hear strange sounds, clawing noises on the on the floor or just muttering and then it comes towards you and then it comes on top of you and might start attacking you or raping you. So that seems to be the sequence in how people report it.
1: Wow I feel lucky to have avoided some of that.
0: <laughs> oh yeah it's um it's really terrifying for people. Oh it
1: is. I mean it was not, I mean I have a
0: Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for for them and it makes sense that some people will have some problems differentiating the hallucination from reality especially could you imagine if you're seeing someone you know
1: and no that, that yeah, would, yeah it'd be terrifying it would be terrifying yeah most people i know would scare the hell out of me so
0: right right
2: <laughs> so what about in the cases where people are seeing someone who's recently died uh is there still a component of suffocation or uh, some idea that someone's climbing on top of them or is it more just a vision that they have
0: All of the above, they really run the gamut. But um, what's strange, I've talked to a few people. I I did a study with a large sample of college students, and a lot of them just experienced their first death with their grandparents. Mm -hmm. And so I can remember a few cases where they talked about loving, having great relationships with their grandparents, and then they're worked into the sleep paralysis hallucination, and they're saying really terrible things to them, Ah. or they're attacking them. Um one case had uh, uh that I that I interviewed she had a boyfriend and her boyfriend was in the hallucination it was just saying the most hurtful things to her and she was even when she was describing it in in session she was crying and she was so upset by it she realized that it wasn't her boyfriend but you can imagine if you have certain psychological conditions that might make reality consensual reality a bit more tenuous that it could be easier to believe well that really happened Mm -hmm.
1: or that was a demonic attack exactly so so that i mean that that uh must be truly terrifying to someone who has that sort of worldview that if they if they have the expectation that there are such things as aliens or demons or old hags I, I, you know, if I'd had my preference, I would have loved to have been, uh, uh, attacked by someone very attractive, you know, all the pictures <laughs> I've seen of succubuses are just adorable. I, 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 I can't, <laughs> it's like that, never had that, <laughs> but it is, it was terrifying and, it, and, and it lasted, there were only a couple of incidents I can clearly recall, but uh-huh. the fear lasted for four or five years. Really? Yeah. yeah, No. Really. Really. Yeah. So I mean, I was, I was, I didn't know what had happened. So my sleep ritual. I got a dog, and you know, because I thought that dogs might be able to see the ghosts and keep them away. Mm -hmm. And Uh and I slept with the lights on. I had a smudging ceremony. I had
0: prayers. I had tried to get a priest to come over. Wow. Uh, Wow. So this really impacted on your life. And oh no, it was
1: yeah, it was quite serious. Yeah, I'll tell you the most. uh, This is amusing to me now. But I I had an incident when I had come back to the States. I had been stationed in the Middle East for about a year and a half, and I came back to the States because my grandfather was uh, uh, having a health crisis and was really pretty close to dying. And while I I was on the way back to the Middle East, uh, I got stuck in Philadelphia for a week uh, waiting for a flight, a military flight. And I was staying at a, a... an inexpensive motel near the airport, the kind that a sailor could afford. Right. <laughs> the kind that when you go in, if it's after like six or seven o'clock, the everybody's behind bulletproof glass, you know?
0: Yeah. I, I went, I yeah. was at UPenn for five years. I know Philly very well. Yeah, and I'm glad I'm not in it, Philly anymore. <laughs> wow.
1: I mean, there was parts of Philly I loved, but that wasn't one of, too, of them. Me too. So, yeah. but I, I went, I woke up uh, after having a sleep paralysis. I felt like there was somebody who had attacked me. i had the lights on. When I woke up, there was nobody there, but I, you know, I, clearly could sense that I was being attacked, right? There was somebody on top of me trying to hold me down, you know? Sure. So when I when I was able to get control of my body again, I, I ran outside in my pajamas to the clerk uh, and said, you know, this is brilliant, right? I, Did somebody die in my room?
2: <laughs> and <laughs> oh, the, the, the
1: clerk looks at me and says, do I need to call the police? <laughs>
2: oh.
1: <laughs> and I'm like, well, uh, no. I just, no, I mean like... It, is there a reason there would be a ghost in my room?
2: Uh-huh.
1: And, and then the guy looked at me and says, do I need to call the police? <laughs> I said, no, I'm going to go back to my room now. And so I went back to my room and after a long, long, long while, I finally got back to sleep. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, it impacted me very negatively, I would say. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah
2: that busted-
1: well,
2: uh, oh, go ahead, sorry. Karen. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I, it, I could see how this could really affect someone's quality of life.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I I didn't sleep with the like the eye mask on or anything. I just tried to sleep with the lights on. That's not really good for your sleep. So no. Yeah. Anyway, but but then one yeah. night, one day, one evening, one evening, I was watching a documentary, and Michael Shermer came on and just started talking about sleep paralysis, and and I, my jaw dropped. I mean, I was like, what, what, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because I had done plenty of reading about uh-huh. about ghosts. And old hags and incubus and succubus and all these other phenomena, but none of them ever mentioned sleep paralysis as a a possible cause. So getting an introduction to the skeptical literature on the matter was hugely important to me. So,
0: Yeah, uh, you're certainly not alone. But again, you know given how terrified you were, you can imagine, I I know you told the guy at the front desk, but a lot of people will really keep those things to themselves and they think they're going crazy. Mm -hmm. A lot of people fear that the paralysis is going to be permanent too. Oh, wow. So while they're there, they think, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to move again. I'm going to die here if, if nobody's checking on me.
1: That's frightening. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then what I'm really fascinated by, it sounds like you guys are too, but I'm fascinated by people who are otherwise, you know, they're, 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 they're normal, but they've got this kind of one pocket of strange belief. Yes. So, mm-hmm. like, if you look at the abductee literature, um, the abductees, um, the literature says that they're no more likely to have uh, mental health disorders than anybody else. Um, which is interesting, and I think a lot of people would be surprised by that, but they're they're yep. not. But they have one kind of unusual pocket of belief. So they vary a little bit on other things. So they might perform differently on uh, – they might report higher levels of dissociation or magical ideation, and there's an inconsistent literature on they may be more likely to develop false memories, but there's hmm. – uh, Rich McNally and Susan Clancy did a really interesting study using the deese rudiger mcdermott paradigm, which is where you give people a list of words, like, say, um, candy, um, sugar, uh, gumballs, but you don't say sweet. And what you do is you ask them, did you report this word? And people in their study were more likely to say that sweet was really a word than people who didn't believe they were abducted by aliens. But uh a colleague, Chris French, tried to replicate it and it didn't work. Aww. Oh, so
2: we know Chris it, French. Well, yeah, 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 he's a great
0: yeah. guy. But so, but th- it's a little bit of a different memory task because misremembering a word is very different from misremembering an entire narrative. So there could be a different memorial process going on. But it's really fascinating that... And then you've got cons- people that have conspiracy theories, some of them fairly elaborate, but are otherwise you know normal people. It's really fascinating. And I, I think all of us probably have little strange beliefs that other people might not share, but we're able to function just fine.
1: Well, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. I think even, even skeptics have that blind spot. And I think Penn Gillett has referred to uh, that as a gree, gree, just <laughs> that, that kind of uh, weird little belief that, that even skeptics have.
1: Well, I, I, I also, oh, cool. I read, um, uh, Dan Ariely's work, uh, behavioral economics. Right. and, and, there's so much interesting stuff there about how people may think they're being rational and they're not. And so I I believe Mm -hmm. the most likely explanation is we are rational enough to get by and that everything else is an illusion (laughs) 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 that, you know, we get by, we're good. We're good enough at rationality to have discovered lots of really cool applications for it and ways to look at things in retrospect. But when it comes to actually taking action, And and forming beliefs, uh, the the, irrationality is always going to be there no matter how much we try to uh, account for it.
0: Yep, and that's probably for the best. I, can, I don't think we can be completely rational. I, think I don't think it would be any fun. Problems. I mean, yeah, you yeah. Mean, when I when Freud I come was home, all about right, conflict, right, I, I, mean, I got to go with him on this. Where's yeah. the passion, right? Yep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I've just got another question about sleep paralysis. I guess for both of you too, for you, Blake, as an experiencer, and uh, for you, Brian, as um, just cataloging other people's experiences. Uh, I, is there any kind of repetition in the way that people suffer sleep paralysis uh, if they they get it on a chronic level? So will they be seeing seeing the same creatures or the same things and having the same experiences again and again, like having uh, that that one dream that you have all the time? Or each time is it a unique thing that you're experiencing?
1: In the case of my experiences, and I can only speak from my own personal experience, they, there was no visual component. So in, in- okay. In all the ones that I recall, now, now something happened to me when I was about six, which, which where I saw something that I would now call a shadow person, and in that mm-hmm. particular case, I think there was sleep paralysis with it. But I've read enough of Elizabeth Loftus's research that I don't really trust my memories. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. I do recall uh, seeing a shadowy person at the foot of my bed, and I thought it was my father. And I and I call I asked him if I could get a drink of water, and and then he didn't reply, and mm-hmm. and and I. I kept asking him, and then I get more and more alarmed, and then eventually called for, started screaming basically, and then he came into the room, and the lights turned on, and there was nobody there, and that's the only time that's ever happened. But when I heard about sleep, of, uh, when I heard about shadow people years later, I was like, oh, I know what they're talking about. I remember mm-hmm. this distinct memory of this shadowy figure that looked in the outline like a person, uh, but, but but there was nothing really there. But all the other things I experienced as an adult were just the sensation of something. I felt the pressure sort of creeping up my chest and then I was unable to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, mm-hmm. the funny thing is, uh, I at the time, I didn't even remember having fallen asleep. So it was, I don't know how long it was between the time that I actually fell asleep and then this happened. But, uh, you know, working the shifts that I was working at the time, it, it, it fought, getting in bed was falling asleep as far as I was concerned. I mean, I was so tired by the time I got to bed. But but no, I I, it was it was the same experience, and it was completely terrifying because I felt like someone had physical access to my body whenever they wanted it, and I had no control over it. Yeah, that's
0: frightening. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: So, but but I'm sure you've you've researched and have much more interesting uh, visual stories, and and can tell me whether there's a pattern or not, or answer Karen's question better.
0: Um, yeah, it seems to be a, a bit all over the place. There does seem to be some degree of uh, inner episode consistency in terms of what they're having. So they might have the same types of symptoms like the suffocation, they might feel cold, they might have visual hallucinations. Um, some people have the same visual hallucinations, other people it seems to vary, but there does seem to be some consistency overall to the general gist of what they're experiencing. Okay. And if you have a strong belief in these Paranormal events you're you, you would think that your brain would be more likely to organize it in that frame mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, as far as scary stories, I've heard quite a bit. I know um, uh, a clinical psychologist who reported uh, essentially having a, a, a Woman that looked like a witch in her 70s or 80s on top of him raping him
1: mm-hmm.
0: That's pretty scary uh, another person had a little vampire girl, and this vampire, she was apparently, she was a student sleeping on top of bunks, and she saw the vampire girl with blood on her teeth, and she kept grabbing her leg and clawing and scratching at her and trying to get oh. at her and telling her she was going to drag her to hell. Oh, creepy. Yeah, so sleep paralysis the episodes last around six minutes, that's the mean. They can last shorter or longer, but the the data says around six minutes. So that's a scary six minutes when you've got a vampire girl yeah. <laughs> saying creepy oh, things yeah. to you. Because
1: yeah. you feel I mean you feel the sensations. I mean that's it, Yeah. It's not it's not like later you remember It's like it's happening to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's really it's really messed up. <laughs> yeah,
0: and then it dis- then they disappear. Then, right, exactly. The They're
1: gone, and you've got nothing yeah. to show for it. I mean, I, I think I've already shared my, my the first time it happened to me. The uh, I, I was in the Navy, active duty. I was in the Middle East. Uh, I was alone in a locked apartment, and uh, I thought someone. I mean, I didn't think supernatural the first time. I thought somebody had broken into my apartment. I thought I was being attacked by an invader, like somebody. It was just attacking the American sailor mm-hmm. and and so when i when it when I realized I had there was nobody there uh i I went ahead and called into base to report it because I didn't know what else to do with it and right. the person who took the call asked me did i what did they want you know what what are they supposed to do about it did they did they want me to send I was in the police force did they want to send a truck over no no. Uh, did, did, did did they want me to put in the logbook that Petty Officer Smith saw a ghost? N- n- no, you know <laughs> yeah. there was really nothing. No, Bill <laughs> I had no, I had no, I had no actions. I had no remedies. I had no methodology for fixing it. So yeah. it was very odd. Sure. So yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's it's scary stuff, and it's so strange. And just you were talking about how suddenly it goes away. If you look back at the vampire mythology. You know, vampires would disappear when cocks crow, at cocks crow. And if you, uh, would wake up and move, they would disappear. If you touch them, they would disappear in some of the myths. So it's really fascinating. And then you got the weird stuff I, I just don't understand. Um, so as I was researching this and looking at some of the mythology, it seems like vampires and, and witches. Um, in the Southern U S there were myths about this and in France as well. But if you scatter millet or rice or seeds, vampires and witches would obsessively have to count them before they could attack you.
2: Uh So
0: they have crippling Arithmomania, which is obsessed the fancy term (laughs) for obsessive counting.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, Um, exactly. I've always thought that was cool because they finally included that on the X-Files, one of their vampire episodes. Uh, he I think I don't know if it was rice or salt he threw down and the vampire had to stop and count and was right. like really mad. I was like, I love that because I always found that a fascinating aspect of vampire lore that's rarely included in modern stories.
0: Yeah. But it doesn't make much sense. Like why would why would they be compelled to do that? But yeah. So hmm. but that's I guess it, it it's a way to make you feel that you have some way of protecting yourself, maybe. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So.
1: Or because vampires have O C D in the real, maybe. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's possible too <laughs>
2: But it's a fascinating topic in general, and it just sounds like uh, you've got a, a great lifetime ahead of you of just researching this. So many stories.
0: Oh, there are plenty of those, and uh, I get quite a number of emails from people with this and exploding head syndrome every week, and I answer them all. They're they're really interesting, and you know, but you hear some doozies for sure. Well, we're and it's nice to get the word out. Um, there's going to be a movie coming out on on this. Um, do you guys know Rodney Asher? No. No. He did he's the documentary filmmaker that did Room 237.
1: Oh, okay. I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard so, so many good things about it. So.
0: Yeah, he uh just directed a movie called The Nightmare that I guess is I think it's premiering next week, but it it goes through and follows eight people with sleep paralysis and they go into it, and it's kind of like a hard documentary. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm gonna write a review for Oxford University Press. They do a blog, so I'm gonna try and see it and Excellent. see what it's yeah. like to get a vivid. You know, documentary portrayal of it.
2: But I guess we should uh, close with our final question. And and Brian, you've been a listener for quite some time, so you you know what I'm about to ask. What's your favorite monster?
0: Yeah, I knew you were going to ask, and I was really torn. I got I, I'll tell you two. I think I will choose one though. But I really like the ahul, the giant bat. Mm-hmm. And but I think my favorite one's gotta be the giant octopus. When uh-huh. I was a little kid, I remember seeing that, uh, Dennis de Montfort engraving of the giant Kraken attacking the ship. Sure. I actually, I actually got a poster sized and framing of that. It's hanging in my bedroom right now. Nice. <laughs> and I, the idea, I love octopi. They're really smart. They're cute. And the idea that there are just giant ones out there roaming about is just fantastic. I yeah. hope they're real, but.
1: Oh, well, I mean, they are. <laughs> I don't know if they're quite to that scale. <laughs>
0: Well, we have the giant Pacifics, and right
1: outside of Seattle. But, yeah. yeah, so you know, it's interesting that that's one of the two topics I've had the most trouble finding the right guest to come on. And one is giant snakes, and the other is the Kraken. And we we <laughs> had a guy talk about the Kraken who was a really interesting character. Uh, unfortunately, we lost the episode. The episode mm-hmm. like nobody's recording worked. So yeah. I've, <laughs> i I want to redo that. And I actually after watching Arthur C. Clarke's uh series i got a little collection of his discs and he did these shows back in the uh, early 80s where they were they were skeptical but they had fantastic access to a lot of the people who were reporting the phenomena that were being uh dealt with the phenomena that were being dealt with, because there's multiples right <laughs> 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 and, and, and one of the episodes was uh talked about a giant squid and, and they 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 cover some really interesting Aspects of those about uh, people who reported being attacked, uh, and uh, a ship that was attacked in the name, like by a bio- biological entity of some sort.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I, I really want to get somebody on who can address uh, those particular incidents as well as uh, the actual biology of these magnificent creatures of the sea. So. Well, for the uh,
0: yeah. giant squid, they have uh, they have a specimen at the Smithsonian. I wonder if one of those folks might be able to do it. You
1: know, it, it's, it's been interesting because I've been in conversation with uh, several people. Uh, but it, there's people who study them and, and and research them. But I haven't found anybody who's willing to come talk. And that's been the challenge. So I, wow. I'll keep approaching it. Uh, but but <laughs> I, I've had conversations. It's not like I can't identify humans. It's that they don't want to talk. <laughs> Especially the giant snake. My gosh, herpetologists are just the most cold and reclusive no anyway <laughs> they
2: just ah <laughs> uh,
1: no i i really that is even before the show started i was trying to get a guest to talk about that because especially because titanoboa in particular you know the biggest snake we know of mm-hmm. uh and while it's a fascinating topic and lots of people are interested in it i just haven't been able to get anybody to come on the show yeah,
0: <laughs> so we'll, we'll get we'll that we'll find in. someone eventually
1: it shall happen it shall happen mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, well, thank you again, Brian, for spending some time with us. Yeah, thank you,
0: Brian. Thank you. It's been fun. Happy 99th. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Monster Talk.
1: Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith. Today, you heard Karen Stolzno and I interview Dr. Brian Sharpless about his new book on sleep paralysis. A link to his book and to some discount codes for use in the U.S. and the U.K. are in our show notes at monstertalk.org. As Brian mentioned, this is episode 99. The next episode is our 100th, and I want to say thanks again to all of you who have sent in contributions for that special show. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Although, I'm sure they do occasionally make Michael Shermer sit up with a start and wonder, was it all a dream? Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you again for listening. skepticism want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time then subscribe to skeptic the quarterly magazine stephen jay gould called the best journal in the field to subscribe visit skeptic.com today
2: thanks for being here
1: yeah no kidding yeah not like all those people that didn't show up for no
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly you're getting to the bottom of the barrel
1: now (laughs) no this is great